0: Open your Bibles to Mark, chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And while we're in Mark, uh, just to remind you that we're in a section of Mark where um, we are talking about seeing. Um, Chapter 8 was all about seeing Christ spiritually for who He is and what He's about, even all the way to the cross. And today we're going to see Christ go Uh, to an entirely different level in seeing Him uh, when Christ reveals Himself in glory. And so, let me ask you to please stand for the reading of God's inspired and errant Word, and I have a question for you to ask of yourself while we read, what do you see? Starting in verse 2, After six days Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, sometimes in life you get to see something that leaves you in awe, Uh, so much so that it even changes you. I'm sure some of you can talk about experiences you've had in places. Maybe you've uh, come to see the beauty of a mountain view or be it an ocean sunrise, even some of us maybe have experienced the beauty of art. Uh, journalist Bill Moyers expri- uh, described uh, an experience he had back in, uh, in 1972. Moyers was an eyewitness uh, to the launch of Apollo 17. Apollo 17 was the last American Apollo flight to the moon before they restarted it re- recently with Artemis 1. It was a night launch, all dark. Moyers reported that there were hundreds of reporters all around him. And having seen this before, they were kind of partying and letting loose, drinking beer, being rough with each other verbally, all while waiting for the 35-story Saturn rocket to take off. But when the countdown started, everyone got settled, and at 3, 2, 1... The bottom of the rocket lit the ground with an orange fireball. The ground began to shake, and as those who've described recently with Artemis 1, you could feel the actual rumbling in your bones as the the rocket took off. Everyone watched as the light became white, and the rocket started to go up and lit the entire sky. As it lifted off, everyone then watched the rocket keep going up, up, up with the blue flame behind it. As it moved away faster and faster, the light in the sky got less and less. And they stood there looking in the sky in awe at the power and at that moment. Moyer said that what happened next was fascinating. These rough-and-tumble reporters actually were silent. They grabbed their chairs and equipment, and they even helped each other pack. They spoke kindly to one another. They changed, and that's because they experienced wonder. (laughs) They saw glory, and it moved them. Seeing with wonder. Seeing that moves us. That's why we celebrate Christmas this time of year, celebrating the coming of that baby that first Christmas night. But guys, that's exactly what we're going to encounter today in Mark chapter 9. For this entire book, Jesus has been trying to help us see who he is and what his mission was all about. In Mark chapter 9, in this, this particular set of verses, Jesus is taking seeing to a whole new level when he reveals something that nobody, not even the disciples, could even come close to anticipating. Like the awe-inspiring moment of the Apollo 17 rocket taking off, Jesus reveals his divine glory. So here's our question today as we kind of go through this text together. What is Jesus like in his divine glory, even right now? And what is the end game of seeking out and seeing Christ by faith in this life and even face to face in the one to come? Well, Mark tells us, he tells us the trajectory of this by seeing, hearing, and making sense of Jesus in this moment called the transfiguration. So let's look at the rocket of Christ's glory taking off and lighting up here in verse of our chapter in chapter nine. Look at what it says there. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and they left up on a, they led, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them; his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now we're going to stop here and say something important is happening right now in this text. And let's remember what just happened prior to understand what's happening in the process. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus has said these sobering things to his disciples. They're all pumped up about his popularity, but he tells them that he's got to be crucified and resurrected. He also tells them in a sobering word that their life of following him must be characterized by the same rhythm of cross-bearing. They must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow him. He goes on to say you've got to lose your life to gain it. And then in this weird promise of verse 1 of chapter 9, he makes a promise that those who were present with him would see the kingdom come with power. So here we are. They're seeing power up close and personal. A week later, six days later, Jesus leaves Caesarea Philippi. He heads to a high mountain. And his, he does it with his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. Now, we don't know exactly what mountain it is. It could have been Mount Tabor, Mount Hermon, Mount Meron. But the imagery is unmistakable here. High mountains in the Old Testament are where God and man met together powerfully and, perf- and personally. Remember, Moses... Meeting with God up on Mount Sinai and the power and personal engagement that went on there. That's what's happening right here. And you have to ask, what exactly is Jesus up to? Well, Jesus is kind of retreating here. He's done it throughout his ministry as we look in the Gospels. He gets away to quiet places, even on mountains. And he prays. He seeks the Father. And in the same way, he's inviting his guys To come along with him to meet God and to pray. And in the process, it happens Apollo 17 lighting up the night sky that night with Jesus. Jesus is transfigured before them with radiant clothes that no one in the world could outbleach. Jesus' brilliance and his splendor lit up the place in some kind of powerful, awe inspiring way that's hard to explain. It's sort of like when the angels visited the shepherds that night on that first Christmas, and the, the, the sky lit up with the angels singing, Glory to God in the highest. Now, at this point, we have to ask, what is happening here? <laughs> what is this? Is this like a light show at Pink Floyd or a fish concert? <clears throat> nope. This moment is where some of the apostles see Jesus in power, just like verse 1 talks about. Even more, you got to know the Greek word for transfigure here in this text is the gr- word we use for metamorphosis. It's the same word for transform in Romans 12. Remember, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In other words, Jesus has changed in some visible and radical way That was way more than getting a new wardrobe at South Park. He was revealing his divine glory as the Son of Man and the Son of God. You see, Jesus, for the longest time, had veiled his identity and glory in his life on earth. He even told people when he would reveal his power and heal them not to talk about it. Now he's pulling back the curtain so that the three disciples could see his heavenly glory. At this point, I have to say, okay, this is what's going on. He's revealing his heavenly glory. What's that got to do with us today? Well, I got to ask you a question. Have you ever wondered what Jesus looks like right now? Have you ever wondered that? Have you you ever thought, you know, I'm not sure about Christianity. I wish I could see Jesus and talk to him so, so I could believe Well, here is your picture of what Jesus looks like, even right now. He comes in a visible, powerful way. Now, for scholars among us who like the Bible and like to study, you can see a similar picture of the glory of the resurrected Christ in Revelation chapter 1, where it lays out this glorious picture of Christ reigning in the throne room of God in all his glory. And what's happening here is like God showing up in a pyrotechnic show in mountains throughout Scripture. God in the flesh is revealing his glory so we can know him as he is. Now, at this point, you think, as if this isn't enough for a text to kind of take in and all that Jesus is doing and the disciples were probably blown away at this point. Another wild thing happens in verse 4 of our text. Look at verse 4 with me. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And now you go, well, wait, what? Elijah and Moses? Well, that seems kind of random. I mean, aren't they dead? And I would say, apparently not. Apparently not. Indeed, uh, this, uh, uh, this is a proof text in many ways that there is life after death. Moses and Elijah are living persons who show up in history in what we call an intermediate physical state. It's the state we will be in while we're in heaven waiting for the resurrection. Now, amazingly, they're talking with Jesus. And we don't know what they said, but we know who they are and we know what they wanted as prophets of God. Moses and Elijah represent the biblical witness of the law and the prophets. That's how you describe the whole of the Old Testament. And the law and the prophets not only laid out what God's people were supposed to do, but it laid out how God's people didn't do it, couldn't get it right not one of them could get it right. And how they would need a Christ, a Christ to come and show up as the Lord to get everything right for them. Moses and Elijah knew that and even predicted it in their prophecies. And I got to tell you, they suffered a lot for what they said. They suffered a lot for following God. As a result, they both longed for a great prophet, a great Messiah and Savior. Let me put it this way. They denied themselves, picked up their cross, and followed Yahweh God. That's what they did. But there's something else I want you to notice about these two guys, Elijah and Moses. really kind of fascinating. Remember in Exodus 34... After the crazy-making golden calf rebellion of God's people, Moses asked to see God on Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. God proceeded to show his back and reveal himself as a God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Notice I got the word abound in. Likewise, with Elijah. In 1st King 19, after a crazy-making battle with the prophets of Baal, and further crazy-making pursuit of murderous threats of Jezebel the queen, a beat-down Elijah fled to, wait for it, Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb, seeking God. And God revealed himself there by passing by him in a whirlwind and in fire. Let me sum up what just, I just described. Both saw God, but they didn't see God. And here's what happens in our text today. They're seeing God in the flesh, in all of his glory. This was not only a fulfillment of their prophecies, it was a satisfaction of their desire to see the Lord in Christ on the mountain. What's this got to do with us? Well, not only does this text give us proof of life after death, it gives us hope that when we deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus, even in suffering, it'll be worth it in the end because we'll see Jesus face to face. Moses and Elijah hung in there to the end, you see, because they had hope. They had hope they would see the Lord. Now, Christmas, this time of year we celebrate, uh, and Christ's birth in particular points us to something. It points us to the hope that God can redeem and glorify human bodies, therefore our lives, and therefore even the world. Christmas points us to the transfiguration, which points us to the resurrection which points us to Christ being in heaven right now in His physical body, ruling over our universe, ruling over our lives. It points us to Christ coming one day in the second coming into our world where He'll show up in the flesh and in all His glory. Do you want to see Jesus? He's at the right hand of God the Father right now in the flesh and he's coming back. And that's good news for us. Because following Jesus can be bewildering. It can be hard at times. Suffering is the companion of the Christian. Granted, we don't suffer like our Chinese or Middle Eastern brothers and sisters in Christ, but American Christian suffering is far more subtle in the pressures we experience. But the transfiguration Following this call to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus shows us that following Christ isn't teeth-gritting, soul-sucking hardship that's all about process and growth. Following Jesus has a destination, and that destination is seeing Him finally and fully in heaven. You see, when you're following Christ, don't miss the forest for the trees of hardship. Don't miss the big picture of Christ's glory waiting for us. You know, uh, this last year I've been dwelling on something. I've been dwelling on the fact that Jesus is alive and at the right hand of God the Father and wants to interact with me personally personally. And I've been thinking about what that means in daily life, and I've been dwelling on one thing I keep finding, frankly, in the book of Mark, among the other gospels, and this idea of Jesus touching us, how he constantly in his ministry touched people with a redeeming, even a dignifying sense. And the reason that's kind of come to life for me is with all the talk of abuse in our culture, which is very real, it has hurt my soul, just like it's probably hurt your soul. And I had a gospel thought about this. Jesus is the very opposite of that in His touch. His touch through the Spirit gives life and dignity to the ostracized and the hurting. And that redeeming touch gives life to those who hurt with things like abuse even today. If you follow Christ by faith, you will see with your eyes the glory of Christ. And yes, you will experience His touch in person. These disciples are getting a glimpse of their future and our future in this awe-inspiring presence of Jesus. So how does that final destination and hope with Christ in heaven, affect us now? Well, I want you to think about this. Think for a second of moments you have seen or personally experienced awe-inspiring things. Beautiful sunset. A view from the top of a mountain. A concert with music that moves you, whatever kind of music it is. A rocket launch. Wrap all those moments up Into one and multiply that times a million, that's what it'll be like when we see Jesus personally. And that's the great news in hard times. Cross bearing is always followed by resurrection and seeing Christ. Back when I was in college, I know some of you might think this is goofy, but I delivered balloon bouquets as a summer job. And I'd drive around the city of Charlotte and deliver boom, balloon bouquets. It was a fun job. One time we were asked to make balloon arches for a Habitat for Humanity concert here in Charlotte. This was back in the 80s, and the guest host was a comedian named Bob Hope. Now, Bob Hope was legendary in Hollywood. I'd grown up watching him and was in awe of even the thought of him having never really been around famous people at that point in my life. So I was there making balloon arches in the Charlotte Coliseum when Bob Hope and Miss America got up and started rehearsing the song for the night. I was literally right at his feet. So I thought, this would be cool. I'll make a balloon for him and hand it to him up on the stage. So I did that. I made a balloon for him, handed it to him from the stage, He reached down. He actually recognized me, reached down to grab it. But, you know, old Bob Hope was a little old and slow at that point, right? So the balloon just went right through his fingers up in the air, and then he missed it. He couldn't grab it. You know, he's trying. Well, everybody was watching and laughed, and he looked at me and like, son, what are you doing? And I felt really awkward at that point. And uh, yeah, I was kind of goofy with Bob Hope at one point. That's right. Well, goofy, is exactly what happens in our next verse in our text. In light of this glorious moment with Christ, Peter gets awkward. Look at verse five and six with me. How he gets awkward. It says, uh, um, "It says, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's a good thing we are here. Let us make three tents: one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah." Don't you love scripture? It's so human. (laughs) You remember this book of Mark was likely the eyewitness account of what Peter said. Mark was just writing what Peter said. And this is the point where Peter told Mark, yeah, I said this really goofy, dumb thing in the middle of that moment. And here's what happened. Peter's so wowed by seeing Jesus in his glory, he suggests, let's build tents. I mean, he's thinking, hey, we're Jews. Let's stay here a while. Celebrate like the Jews do celebrating God's provision in the Feast of Tabernacles. And Mark gets humorous and says, "Look, he didn't know what he was doing. He was terrified." But here's the thing. We're Peter, and he is us. We're Peter, and he is us. We get tastes of Christ's glory in our lives with forgiveness with unexpected providences, with loving relationships in church, with sweet moments in prayer where we really connect with God or we hear the Word so acutely in our hearts and we either take it for granted or respond in middle school awkwardness. We don't know what to do with glory sometimes. Let's just come clean with that. So then, what should be the response with our glimpses of Christ's glory like the disciples talked about. Well, before I answer that, I want to address an important issue about the transfiguration. Is the transfiguration a normative experience for all believers? And the short answer is no. It is an entirely singular event. Though God has shown up periodically in history with amazing uh, revelations of himself, I can think of the burning bush or other mountaintop experiences of the prophets, even Paul seeing the resurrected Christ in Acts 9. This was a a once-in-a-lifetime experience for only three of the disciples, actually, not even all of those guys. So then the question comes, okay, well then, how do we see Christ today and respond to his glory? Well, look at how God the Father responds to Peter's goofiness. In verse, in verse 7, look at what that says. It says, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Well, now we have another wowing moment. We've had Jesus in his glory showing up, we've had Elijah and Moses show up, now the trinity shows up in our text, in history and in one place. One God, three persons, sensibly present. God the Father speaks in this probably awe-inspiring, you know, rumbling of the soul type of voice. God the Spirit is present in that cloud. That's the Shekinah glory cloud. And God the Son standing right there. What's just as important, though, is how the Father speaks. And he gives the disciples and us a hint on how we see Christ today. He says, listen to him. In other words, receive what Christ says in his gospel word and trust what he says first and foremost. We need to hear and receive the word of Christ to really see him. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, the call to listen to Christ confronts our own impulses that everyone here has, including me, and especially me. We want to listen to the crowds, or worse, we want to listen to ourselves first. What we think matters, but it affects how we see. God is saying, listen to Him first. See Christ with your ears not just your eyes jumping to conclusions. The normal way to see Christ then, and even now, is by faith in the gospel word. And I suggest even a pure heart. What do I mean by a pure heart? Remember Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the seeking heart, the wanting of Christ first. But that begs the question then, if that's how we see now, by faith, with eyes of faith, listening to the gospel, seeing with our ears, do we ever see Christ with our eyes? Well, we've said Jesus is going to come back one day, right? And we'll see him in a visible way. But here's the thing, when Jesus comes in his second coming, he will not only transform the world He will resurrect us with new bodies and, dare I say it, new eyes. Then we'll see him in his resurrected glory face to face. How do I know that? We're all called to worship him. And Job 19 laid it out. After my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. 1 Corinthians 13, a famous wedding text says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And then Revelation 22 simply says, they, that is his people, will see his face. Now, in theology circles, seeing the face of God and these experiences of Christ is what we usually call a beatific vision. And the Don't let the the kind of technical language get to you. Imagine seeing Christ all the time for eternity because you trusted Him by faith. Imagine interacting with Him like the disciples did here forever. Now, why would that be a big deal? I mean, visions of Christ in heaven... And sometimes the way heaven's described seems, well, a little boring. You know, we have the, the kind of unfortunate imagery that we're up there chilling out, playing our harps or maybe guitars or whatever, and just doing nothing. Well, John Piper says this really well on what our life now and into eternity is supposed to look like. He says, The chief delight of the soul is seeing and savoring the beauty of Christ. In other words, the top thing you could do in life is to fix your eyes on Jesus and get a glimpse of your future in the process. You ever wonder what heaven's like? Most of us here love to read a great story, or most of us probably like to watch really good movies, even stream series that we enjoy When we're in heaven with Christ, you and I will be hearing a series and seeing a series of the best movies imaginable of how the triune God and Christ did great things in history that we know about in Scripture and those we don't know about. It'll be a new five-star movie every day for eternity as we see Christ, the star of the show, show up who is up close and personal with us in heaven. Now, here's why that matters now. You know how excited you get when you see a movie's coming out? You're like, ooh, I'd really like to see that. Well, that anticipation, that hope for the new movie is a little bit of what it's like to get a glimpse of Christ in our future for the great stories and movies we'll enjoy and see see with Him. And the result of that, is it helps you endure. As you're looking forward to the grand picture of redemption, the story of of salvation coming from so many places and times and people, you all of a sudden have a sense, yeah, I can keep going. I can stay with Jesus and stay engaged with him because I have hope. Indeed, hope is what keeps us moving forward. Hope in Christ. And that hope actually changes us. Indeed, real hope that longs to see Christ in person, longs to see those great movies of salvation with Christ, it causes us to get prepared, to get prepared for preparing ourselves for heaven in a kind of holiness. It prepares us to see the one who we're trying to reflect in our lives. You know, I think part of the reason why the church is less holy today, with so so much disappointing stuff happening in our ranks, is this. We look forward to the world, not seeing Christ. Holiness, on the other hand, is driven by the desire to see Christ face to face, preparing ourselves for him. We're limited in our time of finishing our text. The disciples go on with a series of questions about Elijah. Is he going to show up? They thought, hey, is this Elijah that was supposed to show up? And Jesus says, no, actually, Elijah's already showed up in John the Baptist. But the disciples didn't know what to do with their experiences. They were sitting on it. And in fact, Jesus told them not to tell and to let it kind of sit in their bones until he is resurrected. That's because the resurrection makes sense of everything. It's kind of like when Mary took in what the angels told her about Jesus coming and how she just pondered it in her soul. You gotta understand this pondering, this call to dwelling in silence and contemplation is important for us today. There is something about dwelling on God's glory and Christ's beauty that changes us. If you're thinking, I'm having a hard time changing, my world's having a hard time changing, start looking at Christ seriously, deeply, thinking about Him. Because when you look at the beauty of Christ, it makes us more sensitive in the Spirit. It prepares us in holiness to encounter Christ in eternity. It fills our souls with glimpses Of what it would be like to be with Jesus in heaven. And it causes us to sing, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. There was someone in history who could have said the same thing. His name was Jonathan Edwards, some of whom whom consider the greatest theologian and philosopher from our American uh, uh, soil. Jonathan Edwards had a glimpse of his future in Christ, and he described it one time in his writings. And the reason I tell you this is because I think all of us long for a little bit of this in our lives, even today, as we think about the Christ coming and the Christ in his glory. Edwards said, Once as I rode out into the woods for my health, in 1737, having alighted from my horse, to walk in divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that was, for me, extraordinary. I saw the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and His wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I could judge about an hour. This kept me, the greater part of the time, in a flood of tears, weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated. I wanted to lie in the dust, To be full of Christ alone, to love Him with a holy and pure love, to trust Him, to live upon Him, to serve and follow Him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. Let me ask you guys a question this morning Are you bored with God? Are you bored with God? Open your eyes to the glory of Christ right now by faith and get a glimpse of Him as your future. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we come to this text, we pray that uh, you would indeed do that, open our eyes. You know how much I've been struggling to open my eyes recently. and pray that you give us this vision of your beauty, Lord Jesus. And that with Edwards and so many saints of old who tasted, even if it's just for a moment, your glory, we want that now through faith, through hope. We pray you would stir us in our hearts through the spirit to want to know you anew. Open our eyes, Lord, to see you in all your grand glory. You who's at the right hand of God the Father, you who's listening to us right now and wanting to be with us. Be our vision, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.